So last week, we started talking about the implications of Easter. We talked about how Jesus is our living hope and what the implications mean for us, meaning the things that, uh, that it affects for us in the future and what that looks like for us as believers. And so the, uh, the, the simple idea is this for today, is that the resurrection, without the resurrection, none of this matters. None of this matters, not just today, not just today like here right now, but like church as a whole and also by extension our lives. That it, without the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, because he is alive and we can say that he is our living hope, that none of this matters without that. Maybe you've heard this phrase before or seen this, death is only the beginning. It was something that was uttered in the movie The Mummy. Um, as well as uh, in, a, in a, the Sherlock Holmes movie with, uh, uh, in 2009 with Robert Downey Jr. that the, the, um, the villain in the movie says this right before he's supposedly executed. Spoiler alert, it's all a coup. Um, sorry, it's a great movie, still go see it. But um, you can't go, you can rent it. Anyway, the point is, is that this phrase being used in media and all kinds of things, this idea that death is only the beginning is something that people want to know. Humanity, we want to know the truth of this or lack thereof. Is there a truth to this? This idea, see, we want to know what our future holds. We want to know if this is all just a waste of time. So is it? Is this all just a waste of time? Because there are some schools of thought that say that life is. That, that really, that, that the Christian life is, and that life in general is just a waste of time in terms of the afterlife. That there's nothing after this. That there is no eternal soul. That we are just extinguished after the fact. That, that mentality, that idea, that's called annihilationism. Meaning like we're just annihilated when it's all said and done. Have you ever uh, gone to wash your car and you see storm clouds coming and you're like, should I do this? And you see storm clouds coming and you're like, well, probably not. I remember taking my car through the, uh, through the car wash and it was perfectly sunny when I, when I went into the car wash. <laughs> I come out of the car wash because we know Ohio, right? You don't like the weather? Wait five minutes. I come out of the car wash and it's like a big thunderstorm and I'm like, wow, that was a waste. You know, big waste of time and energy. But if you're like actually manually hand washing your car, are you still going to wash it if you see like a storm coming? Now, if you've got a garage big enough to wash it inside, you probably will. Um, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Like it would be a big waste of time and energy. And so if there's no resurrection, is this a big waste of time and energy? Yes. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you've got your Bible or the Bible app. You can follow along there. Uh, pull up the free Bible app. Look up Connect Church in Akron, Ohio. And uh, you can follow along with the notes there. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, all morning. Uh, we're going to go through this whole chapter today. Not every single verse. I would encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter later um, to, uh, to get the full everything that, that Paul's talking about here. But we are going to look at a lot of things in context um, in, in this. In, in regards to what Paul is getting at in all of this, because he's really talking about the meaninglessness of the Christian life and life in general if there is no resurrection. And so if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, then Christianity is pointless and a waste of time. And so is our hope. So is our hope for today. 
So is our hope for the future. But Paul also gets into a few other implications that you maybe haven't considered that we're going to look at today. So we're going to start in verse 3. Paul starts with this. He says, I passed on to you. And remember, he's reading, to, he's talking to a church. He's writing a letter to the to church in Corinth. And he says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. So he's saying this is what was most important. Charles Spurgeon said of preachers that we are repeaters. We are repeaters, that we tell the message that we have received. And it's very true. There's a lot of truth in that. So Paul didn't make this up. Paul didn't make up this gospel. This was passed on to him, as it says. It's not Paul's gospel in the sense that he created it. And every Christian concept and doctrine that truly matters hinges on the resurrection. And he emphasizes that this was most important. He says this is most important. What he's talking about are essentials versus preferences. Essentials versus preferences are things that we get mixed up often. We often get our preferences and we think that they're essentials, but they're really not. We put them up there as the most important and it causes a lot of conflict a lot of times in a lot of relationships. And it does in churches as well. So, for example, essentials versus preferences. Um, I believe that having an iPhone is essential as opposed to an Android. Some of you green bubble people are screwing up my group texts, right? And, and, and you're proud of it, and I'm, and, I, and I'm praying for you. So, but like, here's the, here's the thing, right? Like, is, is that essential? I believe so. But is it really? Right? Somebody's like, yes, in the back. Android versus iPhone, right? Yeah, a couple people are leaving. They're like, I'm out. No. But like, no. But honestly, don't we do that about things like that? Is, is that really the essential is it, or, or is it a preference? It's a preference. And we know that it's a preference. So what's most important? What are the essentials of the faith? Let's talk about a couple of those that we end up throwing a fit for. Things like baptism style. Is baptism an essential? Sure. Is the way in which we do it? No, that's a preference. What about uh, how we do communion? We do it a bunch of different ways. We've done it a couple of different ways. Is that, is that an essential or is that a preference, how we do communion? How we do it is a, is a preference. Some of us like, like it done certain ways. Okay, that's fine. Doesn't make it wrong necessarily and how we do it but the fact that we do do it because Jesus told us to do it to remember right what about uh, music preference there's something that we throw a fit for in church right our music preference and we make that an essential what about our clothing style I'm just wearing jeans that may not be cool with everybody but it's a preference not an essential Jesus wore sandals and kind of a robe and it was dirty a lot and that was Jesus. And you're like, well, that was first century. Yeah, I know, but still. Right? And, and why did he wear that way? Because that was the dress of the day. It was a preference. It wasn't an essential. We, we, we can 
get up on a hill about some things and we can throw a fit over things forgetting that there are preferences. And we can do that in our walk with Jesus as well. I want you to notice something about the core values, the seven core values that we have on the wall right there and that are also on our website if you haven't read through them. You could certainly do that. I want you to notice that our core values have nothing to do with personal preference. They have nothing to do with personal preference. Why? Because at the core of our faith, it's about what Jesus said was most important. It's about what Jesus said is most important. And your future hope and mine is not based on preference. Praise God. That your future hope and mine is not based on preference. It's based on essentials. And Paul was talking about that here. So it's based on essentials. And then Paul gets into the proof next of that. In verse 5, he says, He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born in the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. So Paul's really showing some humility here. Absolutely. But also some perspective on, on where he is. Um, you know, there are plenty of extra biblical texts. There are historical writings that go to prove the resurrection of Jesus. You heard Billy Graham say it in the video that was there uh, b- before, the, before the sermon started here. And you know, it only takes three eyewitnesses in a court of law for someone to be convicted. And the Bible is sitting here saying that there were at least 500 that we know of, and those are documented other places as well. History is, can, can be very reliable with the confirmed testimonies of people. And this was uh, Paul's uh, ancient way, basically, of providing footnotes, of basically going, listen, if you don't believe me, go and ask other people. Go and ask them. Go and ask the people that saw him. And later on, we actually see people putting their lives on the line, being ostracized by family, being ostracized by friends, persecuted, imprisoned, killed, all for a lie? All for a lie? All for the biggest con in the history of the world? is what it would end up being? No, it was for something they saw in person, for something that they experienced. And that is evidence right there. A changed life of a believer. Your changed life and mine is evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Do you realize that? Your changed life and mine, the changed lives of of these people that were talked about here, the people that gave everything gave their lives would you give your life for a lie there's a lot of people in the bible that gave their lives for what they knew was not a lie because it was worth it because of the resurrection of jesus and the implications that that has on all of humanity so that's the first implication in this chapter and it makes us focus on what is essential and what is most important in the proof of it. And then Paul goes on to talk about a second implication for us as the church, if it were not true. Verse 12 says, but tell me this, 
Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. So there's some argument among the Corinthian church here that Jesus rose from the, from the dead, but there is no resurrection for us. That's what, it's, that's what he's talking about here. He's having to refute a specific thing because there were some people that had come in and told them that we are not going to be raised, that only Jesus was raised and that was it. And so we were getting into some doctrinal confusion here. But here's the thing. That just doesn't line up. That doesn't line up. And Paul needed to set them straight on this. There was, this was more than likely influenced by some Greek philosophy and, and different outside people. Because you've got to remember something here. This was all new to them. This was all new to them. This whole following Jesus and the resurrection, like this was all still new. They're still trying to figure it out. And sometimes we can come down on people who are still trying to figure it out. And, and instead of just saying, that's okay, let's talk it through, which is what Paul does here. He basically says, let me, let me show you why that line of thinking doesn't, doesn't fit and doesn't make sense. So let's, let's, let's explain this here. Because he basically needed, he felt the need to answer the question, what if there is no resurrection? So if you're still trying to figure all this out, again, I will say you are welcome here to do that and to ask your questions and all of that. But let me help set, maybe set some of the thinking up with what Paul is talking about here and answering this question, what if there is no resurrection? Because you can follow his logic through these eight verses point by point. Basically, he's saying if there is no principle of resurrection for us, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Because he said that that's why he did. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death has no power over him and has defeated him. And if death has defeated him, then he has no power and he is not God. And if he's not God, then he can't offer a complete sacrifice for our sins. And if he can't offer a complete sacrifice for our sins, then our sins are not completely paid for. And if our sins are not completely paid for before God, then I am still in my sin. And so are you. And so if Jesus is not risen, then he is unable to save, which means we have no hope. It means we have no hope. But we know that none of those things are true. We know that none of those things are true. When you know what rests on the resurrection, you know why there is hope. Because that is what the church is all about. When we connect to Jesus and then to other believers in community, we find that living hope that informs our purpose. And so Paul only applies this principle to Christians here because he writes, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we're to be more pitied than anyone else in the world. He's like, you should feel sorry for us. You should feel, because we're pathetic. You should really feel sorry for us more than anybody else. See, for the unbeliever, this life, this life gives you your only chance at pleasure. 
It gives you your, uh, your only chance at happiness because this is all you'll ever find and all you'll ever know. How different is that for the Christian life? How different is that for the believer? The implications are massive. Why? Because we have hope now and for the future. Because of Jesus and the resurrection, we have hope now and for the future. Some people that aren't believers, they could say they have some hope now. It's not the same. And it's not the same as having hope for the future. We can live now knowing that we have a future hope of eternal life through the resurrection, that eternal happiness with Jesus, that is in my future. I can say that, stand here and say that confidently. That is my living hope. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that is yours as well. And that is something to be shared. That is not something to be held on to. That's not something to keep secret. That's something that we should be sharing because that changes everything. And so that's the second implication. And a few verses later, he points the church to a third implication that is actually a result of the first two. In verse 30, he said, And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Jesus Christ our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people in Ephesus, like how he calls those people wild beasts, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's party. If there's no resurrection, let's get down. Let's party. Let's do it. Right? Paul is saying, what is the point of all that I've done, all that I've gone through, all of the times that I've been thrown in jail, all the times I've been beaten half to death and mostly to death, um, all of those things, all the times that he was shipwrecked, all the, all the stuff, um, it's, all, it's all pointless right? And he did all of that for the sake of the resurrection of Jesus and for the sake of us too. And so if there's no resurrection, then there's no future judgment. There's no future judgment to consider. So let's party. Let's do whatever we want because there are no eternal consequences. And so that means that there's no moral compass that really matters. See, we're back to the essentials versus the preferences here. It's that argument creeping back in which is why he started with, this is what is most important. So this actually takes us to the third one that this is talking about, which is this, is that knowing the truth about our resurrection should affect the way we live. It should affect the way we live. It affects how we live our life now, how we approach life circumstances, how we see the good things, how we see the not so good things, how we approach the things that we participate in or not participate in. How we approach the drama that we get involved in or, or don't. Um, how we encourage each other. How we love each other. See, we need each other and the hope that we have in the power of the resurrection in regards to the church is a huge, huge part of that. More on that in just a minute. So let me ask you this question. This confusion within the Corinthian church about what really was, where do you think all that came from? Where did all of that come from? See, Paul spent the whole chapter trying to correct and refute confusion about the implications of the resurrection. Why? Well, Paul sidebars here for a second 
into another part of an implication for us to consider that is a direct result of the idea of living in light of the truth of the resurrection. This exact thing that it should affect the way we live. And here's what he says. Don't be fooled by those who say such things for bad company corrupts good character. You might have heard this verse before, but here it is in the full context. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. Ooh, he kind of drops the hammer here, doesn't he? See, the people in the church were being influenced by the wrong people who were confusing them about what to believe about the resurrection and, and other things as well. To be honest, there's a lot of <laughs> the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul is having to correct some things in the entire letter. But this, this phrase, bad company corrupts good character, you've maybe seen this here quoted all the time. Did you know that this was not an original thought from Paul? He was actually quoting from an ancient comedy play that was being performed at the time that was written by a pagan. It was from a play at the time written by a pagan. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Paul quotes it here. He's using the entertainment media of the day to drive home a point that we cannot miss. And it is this. Who you spend time with matters. Who you spend time with matters. Your thinking is influenced by who you spend time with, period. That is a truth. <laughs> That's not my opinion. Your thinking is influenced by who you spend time with. That includes the people you spend time with. That includes the music you spend time with. That's made by people, if you didn't know. That includes the podcasts you listen to. That includes the social media that you're on all the time, scrolling, looking at, places that you follow and like, the places where you hit like or dislike. All those things influence us. The news channels that you maybe just leave on all day. And then don't tell me that you're, inf that you're not influenced by what you're hearing from whoever it is that you have on all day. So you're spending time with them. You're spending time with those people. And you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Think about that. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Some of you are like, oh, dang it, right? But it's true. Maybe you have no hope for the future. And maybe that's because the people that are around you influence you into that kind of thinking and push you toward that, telling you that, or at least they're not helping you. They're not pushing you toward Jesus. So if they're not pushing you toward him, you can make the argument they might be pulling you away. See, the word character that's used in this verse, bad company corrupts good character. Character, a good way to define that is who you are when no one is looking. Who are you when no one is looking? The company that you keep affects that. There's no way around that. You might need to consider a little more who you're running with. You might need to consider who you're running with. I'm not, listen, I'm not saying all your non-Christian friends you need to kick to the curb. That's, don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, the word of God refutes that idea. But maybe consider the influence that they're having on you. 
Maybe consider how much that has affected you and ask, ask God what changes might need to be made. Some might be difficult. Maybe some difficult decisions need to be made, but you might want to think about making a change in who you surround yourself with or, or even maybe think of it this way, surrounding yourself more with believers who are trying to grow in their faith as well. Maybe like, well, where do I start with that? I'm glad you asked because I have an action step for you in that that's a very practical, real one that we call life groups. And we have a bunch of them. We like to say that life is better connected. Life is better connected to others. Life is better connected to other believers. And if we're going to live with the hope that we should have, we need to do it together. We need to do it together within the family of faith. Listen, none of us have it all figured out. So that's why we should do this Christian life together. We should do this Christian life together. And it's tough to do that on your own and you weren't meant to. You weren't meant to do that on your own because we can do more together than we can apart. We can do more together than we can apart. You know, Jesus spent most of his time with small groups of people. His sermons, his big group sermons and all of that stuff that that we hear a lot about, all the stories about that, those were few and far between. If you really read through the Gospels, those were few and far between. Most of his teaching time was with the 12 or three within that 12. See, we have life groups happening right now, and we have new ones starting, and we can start new ones. In fact, the idea is multiplication is for the groups to grow and split and grow and split. That's multiplication. That's what that should be. As, as the groups get bigger, then, then we split so that we have room for others to come in, to be a part of what God is doing and to be a part of the family of faith. And so if you're looking to get connected to other believers, to have others in the family of faith to lean on and to walk through this life together with you, then life groups are where it's at. And we have life groups for all different seasons of life. And we will start one if you don't find one that maybe fits you right now. Couples, co-ed, young adults. We've got, we've got young adults groups starting. We have men's groups. We have women's groups. We grow more in circles than we do in rows. I want you to think about that. We're all sitting in rows right now. And this is just me talking to you. And so there's no back and forth right here other than the Holy Spirit. It's just me talking to you. And this is great, don't get me wrong, but this is one hour of 168 of this week. What are you doing with the other 167? If this is the only time that you are growing in your faith, supposedly growing in your faith, let me tell you something, you're not. You're not really growing in your faith the way that you should be. You're starving to death spiritually. If you ate one hour a week, once a week, you're starving. (laughs) And so... This is an opportunity to grow in our faith in the way that we should be as a church and as a church family so that we can encourage and help each other and lift each other up. This is important. Don't get me wrong. I love our Sunday gatherings. This is huge. This is an amazing thing for us to uplift and edify each other and to be encouraged and to learn from the word of God for sure. But the way that we grow in circles when we're all participating and talking is something that this can never be. That this can And it's the Jesus model. See, the goal is to provide predictable, authentic environment where spiritual growth is cultivated as we all go after Christ's community and purpose together. 
And so you can jump on the website and you can see the life groups that are available there, but I'll do one better. I'll do one even better for you because you may be thinking about that and feeling like maybe this is something we should do, you know, as a couple or maybe just yourself. Maybe this is something I should get into. Our life group leaders are going to be in the lobby in just a few minutes, as soon as the service is over, for you to sign up for a group right then and there. They'll have clipboards that say exactly where their group is, what it, where, the, you know, where they're meeting and, and what, you know, what the group is, if it's a couples group, co-ed, whatever, young adults, all of that. You can go out in the lobby and you can sign up for one this week and next week. I'm going to have them out there both weeks, the next two weeks. So maybe you need some time to think about it and all that kind of stuff. That's great. Cool. But they'll have sign-up sheets, dates, times, location. Listen, we believe life change happens best in community. It says it right there. We believe life change happens best in community and that's what this is all about. And here's the deal. That's not a preference. That's an essential. That's an essential that is straight from the word of God. And so I'm gonna ask our life group leaders if they would actually head out right now. Um, They've all been talked to and prepped and all that. Um, So our life group leaders are heading out right now. And as I start to wrap up the service here, I want you to really think and pray about how you could jump in and be a part of this. And be a part of what God is doing in life groups. And Paul wraps up the chapter. And so I want to wrap up today with some encouragement that brings the chapter together. And I want to bring this all kind of together in the same way. Because I know we're, there's a few different things here that kind of built on each other. Because the truth of the resurrection and the living hope that we have for the future, Jesus, Jesus shows us the impl- implications that are for each and every one of us. And so what do we do now? What do we do now? We know the implications of Easter. We know that they are not a waste of time. We know that they are not useless. We know that Easter forces us to focus on what matters most. It forces us to focus on what matters most. It's the essentials versus the preferences. We know the truth of the resurrection and that that should affect the way we live. It should affect the decisions we make and the way that we live. And we know that who we run with helps keep us laser focused on the essentials of God's word and for the future that Jesus has for us. So the connection point for today is that Jesus is our living hope for the future. Jesus is our living hope, not just for today, but for the future. He is our living hope for the future and that changes everything for us. We have a future hope because of the resurrection and eternal life. And that future hope, that can be yours today. Because look around. You have a family of faith to walk with you through it all. And then Paul wraps it up this way with these verses. Verses 54 through 58, he says, Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die. This scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable always work enthusiastically for the Lord for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Paul's almost taunting and mocking death here. 
I love it. Because he knows that it is defeated because of the work of Jesus. Sin and death, they have no power over the person who is found in Jesus. And we're going to talk more about that next week. We have an eternal resurrected destiny with Jesus so that we know that nothing we do now for the Lord is worthless because it has eternal implications. So listen, don't let the naysayers fill you with confusion and lies. Let the clarity of the word of God speak to you. Surround yourself with people that connect you to Jesus more. And look to the truth of the living hope that is Jesus. Look to the truth of the living hope that is Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, I love you. I thank you so much that you are our living hope. I thank you that you don't want us to go through this life alone, to try to battle the struggles of this world alone, and that, and that who we run with matters. And Lord, you've, you've put us together as the church to help each other, to lift each other up, to encourage each other, to be there for each other, and to learn more about you and to grow in our faith together. And so, Lord, I pray that as we really think through what is most important, God, I thank you that we know in the truth of the resurrection and the implications that that has for us and that that is the most important. God, that you are alive. Jesus, you are coming back to get us one day and then we will be resurrected alongside you forever. That that is our living hope. That is our future hope. And that is only in Jesus. Lord, if there is someone here that doesn't have that hope, that doesn't know you, that doesn't know that, that they're going to be with you forever, God, I pray that they would know that. I pray that today that maybe they would ask the questions that they need to ask, that they would find the answers that they need to find. And that we would see lives changed and souls touched forever. God, I pray for all of us that we would really look at the idea of joining a life group and that we could really grow in our faith together as the church. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would put aside any distractions maybe that we have right now. Lord, and that you would, you would help us to really make a decision on whether we're going to take the next step in our faith and jump in to a small group of believers that we can come alongside, that we can also invite other people to be a part of. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.